on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. So we're back at the property experience today with Michael Bergio of Novak Properties and Steve Polisi of Suburbanite. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Hey, Anna. So... So we are talking all things commercial property today. Uh, That would mostly be because both these boys are commercial property experts in their own right. Michael specialising in sales and leasing and Steve in acquisitions and purchasing of commercial property. So you've got your A-team here and I'm really excited to dive into this chat around all things commercial. And, you know, we're in a really interesting market and a really interesting economy. So I think, um, you know, first thing I'd like to do is just have a bit of a chat about the market generally. But before we go into that, Michael, tell me how you got into commercial property in the first place. What attracted you to it? Um, it it's, I sort of just fell into it. So I, um, my first job was at no in real, no, I was in real estate at Novak Properties. I started at reception and I never really knew or thought of commercial property prior. I knew I wanted to get into real estate because I love the concept of the harder you work, the more you get paid. There's no glass ceiling. So, but every, everything was always residential and the company was very successful in residential, but there was, when they bought a rent roll, there was a small um, commercial properties with the management side of things. And my principal, Mark, his father did commercial. So he always wanted to sort of go do get into commercial significantly and I remember the first meeting when I it was coming off reception and in, I was thinking I was going to get it to go into residential sales and he's like I know nothing about commercial real estate you know nothing about commercial real estate but let's give it a go and I was like yeah let's do it and you just I sort of basically just self-taught myself like I had to learn the terminology and everything but head down bum up and yeah, right. yeah, I love it. Interesting well, there's, journey. There's not much information out there. There's like, nothing. You couldn't Google commercial real estate. So. Yeah. Yeah. There was no one, no mentor speaking about it. Like even your your trainers like a Lee Woodward, Tom Panos. I was I, I sort of had to just listen to them to learn about dialogue and how you could relate it to commercial. But I remember one uh, phone call. I was selling a building in Brookvale and the bike um, on the phone, he was like, what's the whale of the building? And I was like, what's he talking about? Like, I've never heard of the term whale and I'm just thinking like in the ocean. <laughs> and you sort of just like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> and then he t- obviously you learn by the average length of the lease. But things like that, you just go off and learn or you, yeah. I learned more probably from buyers than any type of trainers because they, they, they ask questions you know how to answer. You yeah. have to go find yeah. the answer. I, I had the exact same thing with like cap rates. Someone would say cap rate. I'm like, what's cap rate? Like, oh, capitalization rate. I'm like. Not helping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do I calculate that? Could you get me some? Come get me a calculator over here, Steve. I want to ask you the same question. What led you down the path of commercial? I know you do some residential stuff, but uh, I would, you know, say arguably you spend more time in the commercial sphere than the residential sphere. What's the attraction to commercial real estate over res? Uh, same as same as Michael, I actually just fell into it. So when I first got into real estate after being an engineer, um, got into the resi space, did hundreds of those deals and then just had a few clients that said, Steve, I want a commercial property for increased cash flow. Can you find me one? I was a little bit reluctant, um, but then just went down the rabbit hole, did some research, spoke to people, found a few good deals that I actually couldn't fault and then um, bought a couple and then one a month turned to two a month, turned to five a month, then had some months where you buy 10. So just 
naturally fell into it. It wasn't a conscious decision, but um, I'm glad I did because it's a game changer for my portfolio. Yeah. And it's also less emotional, you know. It, it's really about the numbers, the analytics, which makes it, for people who like numbers and analytics, makes it really interesting. Uh, I know when I was studying to be a valuer, so, um, you know, we did years and years of study. We didn't, we, we didn't self-teach because we had to sit through all the boring lectures and commercial was part of it, but we didn't really know how to apply that in reality. Like, you can read all the books in the world and then when you go out into industry, you've got no idea how it actually works. Uh, but every value I wanted to get into either commercial or development. So we learn a lot about rares, a lot about economics, but the real sort of carrot that every firm, you know, held in front of every value we're starting out was, you know, you can get into the commercial side or you can get into the development side because it is more robust and more sophisticated and really, really interesting. Um, and then you think everything you've learned will help you and you realise it doesn't. So <laughs> you end up in the same boat. Someone asks you a question, you think, holy shit, how do I answer that? Um, but, it, you know, it, it is a really interesting area. Um Let's talk about the market. So, you know, just to give it context, we've just come out of this COVID sort of style economy. The residential property market is going off its head at the moment in terms of prices, um, uh, premium prices are being paid all over Sydney, Melbourne, all over the country, really. Regional markets are performing better than they have in years. You've got money's very cheap at the moment. Interest rates are very low. And then there's a lot of people that have more money in their bank because they haven't been holidaying and spending and businesses have had a lot of, you know, tax cuts and, you know, government stimulus to help them. And then there's the other side of the market where, or the economy, where there are people that are losing their jobs still in hospitality and travel. There are people that have been taking pauses on their mortgages and have fallen a bit further behind than they realised. So we sort of have a two-speed economy happening. How is this affecting the commercial sector and what sort of um, markets do you tend to work in? So you're a Sydney-based agent. Yeah, Sydney, Northern Beaches, which it gives you a good broad scope of all types of properties. We've got a significant retail properties, office sector, industrial and development. So uh, we, myself and my team, we do a lot of leasing, a lot of sales and the the commercial market in the sales side basically just like paused. Like you could say most people when they go house the market, the, you normally say up or down, but with commercial, it basically paused. No new listings came on, nothing really sold. The, the transactions were down, especially above 2 million, where is your main type of criteria, is down like 80% in deals. So you can't really see, so that is the answer to it. Because a lot of time you go, oh, we're seeing great growth, good sales, but the market sort of paused. And that was off the back of buyer sentiment and confidence just was zero. Because a lot of clients had the um, buyers, because you'd normally say, I'll do 100 calls to 100 buyer calls and I'll get one yes. Like during probably from March, it was like, I'll do 1,000 buyer calls and I'll get a maybe that turns into a no. Because everyone was just like, a 7% return sounds good, but what happens if the government locked them down? Mm. So that just caused a lot of the sale market. So people were just scared of vacancy, losing their jobs, revenue, all of those sort of things around COVID because it was still a huge question mark in that March period. Yes, and that was such a big factor that they weren't willing because then we would be like, yeah, but money's very cheap. they got a long lease. Just a fear of the government locking the tenant down because it was handled very differently from the landlord's point of view compared to the residential point of view with incentives from the government. And plus... For the past couple of years, it's already, your days on market is already potentially on average, say, six months for a vacancy. So commercial buyers and landlords were like, well, if it's six months before a pandemic, 
what's it going to be now? 12 months, 18 months. So they were just like, I'm just going to sit back, see how things would unfold. Yeah. Unlike residential where you could play off the emotion or the need for people to upsize, mm-hmm. that, the, that, that market was booming. The commercial I've, just I've also got a little bit of a theory that any investor who owns a commercial property, say five plus years ago, and now supposed to be on the northern beaches, would be on eight nine percent net yield. So where is their value add to sell? Where are they putting their money that they're going to get a better than nine percent return? And there's also changes to legislation in that period too. So as you can imagine, anyone that um, was looking at purchasing into commercial property had the very real prospect of tenants not paying their rent and being allowed to do that. No one really knew how to navigate that at that point. Do they have to pay it back? Is it paused? Is it waived? Is it, you know, people were still trying to figure that out for quite a while after that that announcement dropped. Steve, how do you think that affected people's um, uh, sentiment and confidence and, and decision-making? One of the big things with commercials, everyone lumps it together. So with like commercial, they'll say, oh, people aren't going to the CBDs for offices now. Commercial's a terrible investment. But that's one very minor sector of the – e-commerce is booming. So industrial's actually gone up. Like vacancy rates in Sydney about 1.2%. I'm not sure they are on the yeah, Northern Beaches. Yeah, strong. 1.2%. That, that's tighter than most Sydney residential spaces. So you can buy the lower risk ones, but you have to know what you're doing. But they're, they're so varied. An industrial 200-square-metre warehouse is going to be treated completely different to a 2,000-square-metre warehouse in terms of vacancies, types of tenants, where it should be located and things like that. And, and a lot of that so just comes yeah. off the data. Uh, the, cl- the closest thing you can get to a data report is from, say, JLL, who will basically only give you the information on the CBD. So if you're a, an outside investor searching on commercial reports, you'd look at Collier's. They'll give you a property report, but it's heavily tailor-made to the retail sector on super centres. And, yeah, that struggle never goes, oh, commercial's crap. But... But yeah. you, you can't even look, even if you're looking at the retail sector, one on the main street is a completely different 100%. analysis to one one street back. Yes. So looking at that suburb collectively, that data actually means nothing. Yeah. And and that's the other thing I want to touch on. So you see the commercial property market Australia-wide because you're purchasing for people throughout the country. Um, do you think that the other markets, the more affordable markets, because let's be honest, Sydney is one of the most expensive markets, not just in the country, but in the world. Um, do you think that the more affordable markets, the smaller capital cities or, or regional areas had the same challenges through COVID and out the back of COVID now with stock levels and things like that? Or is it a bit, a bit of a different picture? No, def- definitely as a whole, there's zero stock. So I looked in for Brisbane the other week, did tenant investments under 800,000, three came up. Um, wow. I looked yesterday for two million to three million Australia wide tenanted. About two hundred and twenty came up. How many would you expect? Over a thousand normally. Wow. So I, I could actually go through and contact every agent that had a property for listing, and about half of them weren't actually available. They were already under contract, or they were just left over from from a previous kind of sale. Um, so the market, there's just no stock, and similar to what Michael's saying. Plus, I think the investors, why would you sell when you're getting that type of return? Um, there's more buyers than sellers at the moment, um, and in saying that. I think the buyers are increasing as well because all those Sydney, Melbourne investors that normally stick at residential are now looking at commercial because they don't want to buy something on a 2 3% yield. They want to get a 6 7% net yield. So I think there's a better sentiment around commercial investors at the moment. Five years ago, if I said commercial, people just laughed at me and walked away. Yeah, right. And I am going to talk to you in a moment about yield, Michael, because I know you'd have some really good visibility across that. Um But Steve, something you touched on there, and I think this could be a great tip for listeners that are thinking about getting into the commercial sector. You said you looked specifically for tenanted investments. Now, for those of us, the slow kids at the back of the room, why and what does that mean for a buyer? 
Okay, so firstly, there's a business there renting out the space so you can calculate what your return is from day one while you keep that tenant. Um, the other important reason why you want to go tenanted typically is it's easy to get finance. So a lot of commercial loans are based on how much return you're getting off that property. Hence, it actually goes into value of the property as well. So it's a lot easier to calculate numbers. There are some opportunities to buy vacant properties, but banks aren't just going out handing out loans. A lot of the times you have to have a 50% deposit to buy a vacant property or be a business going into that property. Uh, but for me, it's just a better analysis. You can present it saying, hey, I'm buying this million-dollar property. It's $50,000 cash flow positive from day one. We've got three years left on the lease, and there's a guarantee on the, the bond or the personal guarantee on the, on the lease. So you know for those three years you're going to be okay. And my understanding is there's also some GST implications over vacant versus tenanted. Is that correct? There, there is, but you can get around that. So once you put a tenant in there, or you can claim it back on your first BAS statement. So that's, that's generally just if a, a business is moving into the premise. Right. Under what circumstances would you want to buy a vacant commercial property? Are there any times that would make sense? At the moment, I'm actually looking at some because there's there's not much stock at the moment. So we're trying to do more creative methods of buying a vacant one to then put a tenant in on a long lease, um, negotiating rental guarantees from the sellers and things like that. Um, but normally, if you're just trying to do a value add, so you might buy something, say you're buying a retail one and you do want to do a refurbishment, then put a tenant in on a premium or pull out some equity and things like that. It's normally in the more creative space. And I suppose it also is price dependent. As you say, the value sits in that revenue stream in that lease to a great extent. So if you're going to pick something up that's vacant, you'll want to drive the pricing a lot harder to make that a more viable option. You might lose your first six months of rent in vacancy, but if you can buy it for a price that reflects that and, and gives you a little bit more in that, that upswing of buying power, uh, it could be a worthwhile exercise if the buyer can carry that cash flow for that period. Yep, exactly. Right. And some some investors I know have bought retail spaces, then have started fitting them out as medical spaces, like a, a orthodontist or a dentist or a medical centre, and then get that premium tenant in, and then that can increase the value 20 30% by just having that premium tenant. Yeah, right. That's... Um Interesting that, you know, I think I don't think people think of that value add when it comes to commercial. They see residential and say, I'm going to renovate it, I'm going to add a kitchen, I'm going to add a granny flat, and then commercial, they sometimes think of it as just a box. But obviously, it can be a lot more than just a box. Yeah, you can build um, residential on top of it. You can subdivide it so you can have multi-tenancies. You can get really creative and do things like advertising space, put ATM machines in there. Um, we used to do a lot of the um, telecommunications towers. I used to value a lot of the spaces and leases for those. And they can add a, a fair amount of revenue to, to a property if you've got the capacity to do that. Yeah, I've seen a fish and chip shop in Sydney, I won't say where it is, where there's a residential on top, the telecommunication repeaters on top, ATM building on the side, and a granny flat out the back. And I'm just like, how many streams of income does this person need? <laughs> They're ready to retire. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> live under those. I wouldn't live under those telecommunications though. <laughs> yeah, they might, they, they might get cancer. But, you know, that'll be, that's, the, that's the price we pay sometimes. Uh, back to you, Michael. I want to talk about yield and driving the rental returns. So what, what drives yield? What makes one property achieve a higher return than another property? Uh, how do people safeguard their yield? So if I'm going to buy a commercial property and I'm putting tenants in, I really want to know I'm going to safeguard that as much as I can. So in residential, we tell our clients things like, you know, don't be a schmuck of a landlord and never fix anything because you'll lose tenants and then you come through and there's maintenance problems, keep a maintenance register and just little things like that. Uh, what does that look like in the commercial space? How do you safeguard your yield and what drives yield? Yeah, it's very typical as well, like main road, um, visibility, signage opportunities, all that, all those aspects really appeal to a potential tenant. Big factors could be having a grease trap and exhaust put into the property. 
even if you've, let's say you have got a property and it was used by a retail, uh, a real estate agent, but in the background as a landlord, you're getting strata approval, which can be quite difficult or um, in a new development, you get that already approved for the property. So you've got that flexibility that can really safeguard the property. If you've got multiple uses, if you have a, a property that's too specialized or the fit outs too, spe- well, the fit outs very different property to property because some owners love the property to be stripped back to nothing um, with every tenant cycle. But sometimes you may have a really good basic fit out that you just sort of keep within it. But visibility signage, there's little things like um, if you're having some buildings, there's minimal signage, but a landlord will protest with the strata, get the side of a building for their asset, and they will appeal for a tenant to pick um, that property over another when it comes to the leasing side of things. But it, ver- it just varies so much. The, there's a word I always use is versatility. You yeah. want to have a really versatile asset class. But it, like Mike said, it's going to depend. So if you're buying in, say, a medical precinct and the medical centre leaves, sometimes you actually want to leave the fit out there because that's actually more lucrative for a new tenant coming in. But again, you're going to have to assess the market on where you're buying, what you're buying and, and what the purpose is long term. So, Michael, if you were going to go buy some commercial properties, and I, you know, you may already have some in your portfolio, mm. what do you look for? What type of, as Steve said, you get lumped into the everything's commercial, but it's, it's not. You've yep. got petrol stations through to industrial, through to office space. Like They're all very different assets with very different risk profiles. What are you looking for? What do you think is a good commercial investment for someone? Yeah, so if I want the best sort of value, let's say it's a client under 40, still working. If you want to get the highest returns... It's buying something vacant because one, no one wants to buy vacant, but no one wants to buy vacant because the unknown, the fear, because they norm, it's not the leasing market. If, if the commercial sales market, it, there's little information, there's no information on the leasing market. That's why a buyer will pay such a premium for a tenant property to sort of de-risk that. But if I was looking to buy, I'd be looking for a vacant asset. I'd rather buy personally. Instead of buying it, let's say the bank would say you could buy a tenanted property for a million. I'd rather buy a vacant property for 500000 because then you can generally get an 8 to 10% return. Yes, you've got those holding costs of, of till you get it vacant, but you're buying a property at a much lower price point. And I always say to clients as well, anything under a couple mil, unless you're a national tenant, you generally only get a two or three year lease term anyway. So if you're buying it, now with a tenant, it's probably going to come empty within a three or a six-year cycle. So you're going to have to face that vacancy. Yes, it's easier if they're already in there and you get the notice, but I've seen properties identical sell at a 30 to 40% premium. So you buy it vacant for 300, they buy it tenanted for 550. You can almost have afford. You can almost afford to have it empty for three years, and it's still a better plot, um, value. So if I was buying now vacant, I th- and there but that's you've got a a lot of people can't do that because they don't have access to finding the tenants Mm. they don't know an agent like if you look at northern beaches if there's 2,000 residential agents there's only 10 commercial and what sort of category of commercial do you like if you were looking at buying something is it industrial office space retail what what do you think is a good asset class industrial that you can have multiple tenants where I see most successful clients and what I'd buy I'd buy a factory that you can chop it up like a lot of people don't get caught up in the details of strata tiling it just multiple tenants so 
Um, you'd instead of, you'd get a four hundred square meter factory, which may have side access, so you could put three roller doors in there. And instead of getting on the northern beaches, instead of having one tenant at two hundred a square meter, by chopping that up to four tenants at a hundred dollars, a hundred square meters, you'd get a rate of three hundred per square meter. So you're already giving yourself a 30, 40% upshot in your rent and value. So versatility and multiple tenants is key because there's nothing worse. Like clients hate the concept of having one tenant and when it's empty, I have zero income. If you can have, it doesn't matter if they're four small tenants or four large tenants, if you can have multiple tenants, when vacancy comes up, you're not going from full income to zero income. That would be the best. Even like a a small 60 square meter retail shop with two doors or you get two doors on either side put in. So if one tenant, you can put a wall up and rent it to two different tenants. There's ways you can shape it. You put a, a, a head lease, then you sublease off that. So it's for council purposes, it's a little bit easier if people have a whinge. But the biggest message for anyone looking to buy, if I was to buy, have multiple tenants, multiple backup plans. Yes, you would love just one tenant, make it easier but you'd also love to always be having 60% income of the building coming in to 100%. And this is the opportunity in commercial as well because most people don't understand how to do all these things. They they understand with residential how to subdivide, do duplexes. Put a granny flat. That's right, but commercial space is a completely different area. Even different types of commercial varies, like retail follows a different leasing act compared to like industrial, so you have to understand the intricacies of each asset type. And that's a really good point, Steve, and that comes back to that versatility that you spoke about. you mentioned, Michael, you touched on the due diligence of being able to get leasing information and vacancy information and how challenging that can be. I know you're buying properties every week, Steve. What's the due diligence that you tend to look at? What do you think a buyer should absolutely be able to to um, get across? And I mean, they might not know how to do it themselves. You obviously have access to information that not every buyer does. But what's really important to cover in due diligence? And I know it's a long list, so yeah. pick uh, we'll, your favourites. We'll, we'll, st- we'll stick to <laughs> the, one too. the two big ones. is obviously the purchase price is spending. So that's looking at comparables. Um, even that's harder than you think as well because it's an unregulated industry. Stuff goes on. There's incentives and whatnot. So look at the square metre rates that someone's paying for a similar property. The hard point with that is there's actually not that many comparables sometimes. Like Northern Beaches, I bought one off Michael, I bought a a nail salon up on Newport. Um, We had like two or three comparables because nothing else has sold in the last couple of years. So that one's a little bit more of a black art that you kind of got to analyse. So try to find square metre rates. Black art, I like that. I'm going to borrow that one. (laughs) (laughs) Black art. Yeah, so try to find the square metre rates to make sure you're buying at a good rate. And then the second one would be actually look at the comparable tenancies. So what what are they leased on and the vacancy periods that go along with that. And as we keep saying that it's not as easy as going on a, a website looking at what a vacancy rate is. You actually, well, the way I do it is I'll speak to multiple property managers in the area and find out what's actually happening on the ground. Then I'll also go on a website like CoreLogic and go find any comparables I can how long their leasing campaigns were, what they first advertised it for, and then find out what they ended up leasing it for. So there's a lot more work with residential and that's why some investors get scared. Yeah. And a lot of agents don't even put the address of property so it no makes way. it even harder. No addresses, no no prices. What I did, and it's hard, I befriended a lot of valuers. So uh, typically um, a lot of agents, when a valuer would call them, they'd be, they'll just be very, I don't know, rude to get them off the phone. It's sold for this or at least for this and hang up and hang up. But when I was new to the industry, like we had no data in the company, 
and no one was online. You can't really call your competitor say, hey, <laughs> what what your lease is? How'd you do this? So That with, doesn't go down too yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> with valuers, I would say to them, I would um, give them the information, but then I'd also ask, would you mind sharing your comparable data? And over time, I built up like a master list and had thousands of sale deals, rental deals. So when I would appraise something, I could then go into it and be like, okay, and then you weed through it. But yeah. it's it's the hardest thing for a, a typical mum and dad buyer. It'd be very difficult. Yeah, we analysed one recently for a big corporation we do some work with and, and Gareth, one of our valuers, was tasked with going through pricing and, and valuation. And he sat there w- with them and explained how he drew down all the leases on every sale he'd analysed so he could work through what the value was, where the incentives were, et cetera. And they, they were shocked that he put that time and effort in. Uh, obviously, also was justifying the fee he charged. Just mm. <laughs> had to show them yes. why, he, why he was charging that much. But, you know, I, I think it's interesting that the, this particular um, buyer, they were looking at spending about $12 million and they didn't have the context on what was involved in even just getting that analysis around comparables, yeah. drawing down leases, drawing down that data. And they probably wouldn't have known how to do it if they'd had to. It's, it's quite an in-depth process. I know, Steve, I've seen some of your due diligence reports and, and they're quite detailed. And I know you look at things like um, competitor analysis in the area, uh, drawing down rental ledgers. Like even with us in residential, if there's a tenant, we draw down the rental ledger because it might be great to say, yeah, they pay $1,000 a week, but if they haven't paid it for three months or they've been getting incentives in that because of circumstances, um, you know, we find that is rather important. A lot of people don't necessarily take that step. Um, What are some of those things? How do you get some of that information and why is that important? Mainly if you're buying an intended investment, you want to see that the business is going to succeed long term. So if you're seeing like comparable properties that are vacant or spaces that are available where a competitor might come in, that can be detrimental to your business. So say you're buying a a Thai restaurant and then one opens up three doors down, that could hurt your business. So therefore you'd lose that longevity. So that's why I'll always buy in tenanted areas where there's minimal vacancy, minimal competition, and just generally you have to understand the industry in. Like, are, are they going to be around long term? So, like, some things like, I oh, will stick with Thai food or, say, Chinese restaurants. They seem to be on the way out, but Thai and Vietnamese ones are kind of, at the moment, the flavour of the month. Ha um, flavour of the month. Yeah, I see what you did there. So it's just, it just been, I always look and like we said before, the versatility because you want the tenant to be there and them to have no options to actually leave anyway because if another one becomes available and they get desperate to tenant it out, they might actually move into that at a cheaper price. So you just want to keep them on that premium for as long as you can. That's great advice. Um, do you think most buyers agents are going to this extent when they're looking at purchasing property? I haven't met any yet, so no. It's interesting. I, I know a buyer's agent recently um, asked for a bit of guidance that did come to a competitor because they were helping um, buy a commercial property for a client. Uh, I think it was the first one they'd bought and they hadn't advised the client that they would be paying GST on the purchase because mm. it was vacant. Um, and so all of that other stuff, like they didn't even realise there's a GST component, let alone all that other stuff. was It was millions of dollars worth of investment. So the GST was not a small bill. <laughs> but with, with due diligence, you have to look at what type of investment you're buying. So like um, the nail salon I mentioned before that I bought off Michael, foot traffic is in- impeccable for that. You need really good foot traffic, whereas I wouldn't have bought that asset if it was one street back. Mm. So I look at, at different times a day, how much foot traffic is going down that street. Is the population of that suburb growing? And then as a risk mitigator, making sure they're not going to build any more retail that might price you out in the future. So there's a lot more to it than residential. 
And there are some sectors where people will go seek out a specific business. Like a doctor, you go to a doctor, you seek him out. You don't need foot traffic. A tattoo artist, you seek out the person that you want based on their quality of work. Even a hairdresser in many occasions in, in you know the, the ladies' world, you follow your hairdresser even if they're in a back street. Um, whereas some other business, like nail salons, they're a dime a dozen. You, you walk past it, you go in, you think I'm going to get a manicure today because you know they're, they're offering same, same, but different yeah. you know yeah. different but but again i wouldn't the pay the same price for that hairdresser two streets back if there's less foot traffic as if it was on the main street because if that hairdresser ever leaves you're stuck with a vacant vacant yeah. possession like so. you say versatility who's yeah. your end user who else can be your your client at the end of the day and i love it a lot of it's a lot of buyers and i can't encourage especially doing the transaction with you for buyers to engage a um a buyer's agent especially on the commercial side because putting everything in a lot of buyers miss context like I was doing, we had the nail salon, but I also had Eleonora, the the cafe one, which was basically like a neighborhood cafe. And everybody that came through, they oh, there's no foot traffic, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, y- yes, but everything's um, in relation. So if this was on a main road, the rental rate would be 1,000 a square metre. It's only 400. The yield's the same. So you've got to put things into context, and a lot of buyers miss that as well, but that comes to exactly and where you are. If you're looking at that nail salon on the main road, but then you see one on the street back and it's the same rate per square metre, like, hang on, something's funny's going on here. Yeah, but for that that location for the cafe, it was actually a suitable spot. There was actually no yeah. competitors for yes. about 300 metre radius. So you had that whole residential area going to that cafe, which is, yep. it was servicing that region, and that can actually be a long longevity kind of uh, tenancy. Yeah. Would either of you buy office space in a CBD at the moment? Oh, we've both got two okay. very, very, very <laughs> yeah. concerned-looking faces here, well, thinking I, deeply. <laughs> long-term plan, if it's sort of like set and forget, at the end of the day, we're not going to – the city prestigiousness is not going to go away. It could take a six months to bounce back, could take three years to bounce back. But our society, the business culture of having an office in the city, that's not going to go anywhere. Yes, people love working from home. That A few businesses will change, but – I think we love being all together and going out the Friday nights, everything in the city. So I would, but it would be money that you're not going to look at and just set and forget at a good price because my view is, yeah, the city's going to bounce back. It will just like the, yeah, it will bounce back. What about you, Steve? I agree with Michael, but it's the price I pay would be based on that I know that occupancy might be quite low for three to five years. Um, but much like apartments, I'll, I'll generally buy the low-density ones. So if I can get maybe an office suite where there's only three storeys, for instance, and there's less stock, then you've potentially got development potential down the track. And again, that versatility factor of it. And I think we're looking at, you know, it's not even just whether it bounces back or not. I think we're looking at more um, uh, different solutions coming about. So, you know, the law firm that might have had five floors might only have one now and they have a blend of work from home and that yes, behaviour exactly. change may not yeah. go back to where it was. And things like um, co-working, shared spaces, shared economy has already been forging into the, the city spaces before COVID because, you know, let's be honest, real estate in the city is expensive and businesses don't need to have a whole floor to themselves necessarily. So I think we're going to see a real shift in how people use city office space, which I suppose investors need to either take advantage of that and leverage that There's opportunity there uh, but not get left behind either and buy the wrong product the, the cities are coming back though i was in there yesterday for meetings in sydney cbd and oh. there was a lot of people around it almost felt pre-covid yeah right that's interesting yeah and i think i i reckon that sort of work the work culture hasn't really changed for for decades and i think this was a really good shake up to the system not in a good way but a, a shake up to the system that people will be looking at can I have, because I remember hearing people doing an A and B team, three days in office, two days out, 
But even reducing what you're saying, instead of taking five force, let's take one, reduce the um, expense of the company. People like the flexibility working from home. I got happier staff. Like that, I don't think that ever would have happened. Without a pandemic, I don't think owners would have come to that conclusion. A lot of them probably were like, I wouldn't trust my staff not to work without me watching them. So they were forced to do that. So I think there's going to be some really, really good positives. That's not a matter of trust either. People are just happy to have a job, let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, balance yeah. of power shifted a little 100%. bit. When, when I was an engineer, I worked from one day a week from home and you'd get those looks in the office like, oh, you're just bludging, you're going yeah. to the beach, having a swim, et cetera, et cetera. So now that, that's at least gone. Yeah. And I yes. think pe- people, most of my friends and most people I speak to want to go back to the office normally three days a week. Yep. So even at, say, the Sydney CBD was full, 100% occupancy, now we're at three-fifths of that. Um, so it won't be long until that gets to, say, 80 90% again. And the challenge is also training. We've had a few new people join our team in the last six months and training someone remotely is bloody near impossible. That's yeah. where it becomes a, a real challenge for businesses and, and putting together people in the same space solves that challenge. I, I find this, like the bond you get with people culturally from being face-to-face yep. is completely different. You're Have, assuming you like the people you work with. Exactly. Right. Nice. But, but even if you don't like them, you, you find out that you don't like them quicker. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I know the city will bounce back because the culture, the mentorship, that is, you have to have that in the office. So, and you, as you said, you can't get that through Zoom. Have, have you found any businesses looking for like the Northern Beaches, for instance, to move their offices to, to bring that lifestyle? So I know you're going to lose some of the talent pool because yep. you're going to knock out like, I don't know, it's maybe Western suburbs or the south side of the bridge, but... Um, I'm that, south. I wouldn't be going to the Northern mm, Beaches but, but, to work. But that's right. But being <laughs> you're also increasing it because you'll actually get Central Coast people yeah. or right. someone there. So have you found any businesses looking for little office space in the Northern Beaches yet or are we still a bit away from Not that? yet. A lot of people living, moving, like the, 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 the migration from eastern suburbs and from the city to Northern Beaches for that lifestyle. But I think with that three days a week in the office, that will open up, that will allow companies to go, well, i got five staff on Northern Beaches, let's do a satellite office. Northern Beaches, let's do a satellite office in Parramatta. I think that will happen. That's what we're doing. We've yeah. got satellite offices everywhere now, like yes, just little shared spaces because our team's everywhere yeah. and it De- works better. Decentralised from a, the headquarters, which had the five levels and spread people and I think everyone will have a happier work-life balance. Yeah, absolutely, which means the, the Regis's and the work clubs and all those sort of shared sort of spaces that do take up these big spaces and then, you know, carve them up or anyone that's smart enough to have versatility is going to really be the winners out of this, I think. Yes. Um, so it's not about not buying in the CBDs. It's about how to be how to be ahead of the trends and be the winner out of it and be yep. be a bit more flexible with what you're doing and getting the right advice, I suppose. Um, all right, a couple more questions before we wrap up. So we've talked a lot about buyers. I want to put on the hat of a seller now. So obviously we've got an audience out there, people buying, selling, investing. Some people are just probably listening because they've got nothing else to do. Listen to the dulcet tones of my voice. Um, but as a seller in the commercial industrial retail space, what are some of your top tips and how do you pick the right time to sell? Like res- residential can be very seasonal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can also be driven by things like interest rate changes and that sort of thing. What should a commercial um, property owner be thinking about when they're getting ready to sell? Yeah, so I think timing, it's pre- it's very irrelevant uh, in my experience, but there's a there's so it's a, not a summer thing. You're not waiting yeah. for the flowers out the front of your office yeah. <laughs> block to bloom. <laughs> no, it doesn't doesn't matter. They bake but some bake some cookies in the back of the warehouse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Show it when the sun's shining. Yeah. A lot of that's irrelevant in my opinion. It's also why I love commercial more than residential. Yeah. <laughs> but the legwork before going to market is key. 
Now, we know a lot of assets are determined based on the income. So if you're if an owner comes to me, like the amount of properties I won't bring on for three, six, nine months because they may come to me and the leases, they're all expiring. They haven't increased the rents for 10 years because it, it was inheritance. And I'll be like, okay, well, let's, before we go to market, because a, a buyer's going to go income 100 grand, 5% return, that's what I'll pay. But there's always a difference between the current rent and the potential rent. Now, you, you've got two options as a seller. You can e um, either get it to the full potential rent and then you can um, get the full value for it or you just have the potential open. So a buyer can see the potential, but they're not going to pay you rack rate or full freight if it's just because it can get 200 grand a year, they're not going to pay you the 5% yield on 200 if it's only got to get if it's only getting 100. Well, their risk is getting it to that point. Correct. So with a seller, we'll decide go one based on their timing. They may inherit sure it. There's a calculation on this present value of a something. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of time <laughs> it's sort of that. yeah. If it's a bit lower, <laughs> they, they probably look. If it's freestanding, they may want to be buying on a seven to eight percent return to get it to five, mm. um, or if it's already. Add there, they want five. So with a seller, if the time, if they say to me, Michael, I've got all the time in the world, I want the most for it. I go, great. Well, we'll negotiate with the current tenants. If they won't pay the full potential, then unfortunately we will either, we won't give them a new lease because there's nothing worse than signing them up under the full potential. I would almost rather it empty so I can market the full potential to a certain degree than lock someone in at a, a rent that's maybe 70% below the potential. So a lot of that prep work is done. There could be little things we could do by creating another tenancy, all that just getting the income and the potential income and painting the story. Um, some buildings you don't have to. I had one where they had increased rent for like 20 years. I've never seen rent so low. Um, but buyers loved it because then they could get in there. There was development potential. So case by case, but it's all about the story and the income and the potential income. And this is why you want a good commercial agent because they do these prep work. It's not like residential where you say, oh, do some carpet and paint it, make it look fresh. We'll get it on the market next weekend. You're, you're talking months, if not years sometimes yes. to get this sorted before you do the sale. And I've had a couple deals where I can, I know I made that client a couple million dollars extra because there was one I know in Brookvale, each agent appraised it at like um, mid, high two, uh, mid to high twos and I ended up selling, the, but then we did the framework, the prep work and I sold it for like 4.6. They just gave me time. They trusted the the view, which is obviously a risk for an agent. We got three agents saying, <laughs> um, I'll sell it now for this. And you got one saying, let's wait, let's do this. And like it's, um, but fortunately enough now, I've had so many runs on the board and success stories that with clients that you can sort of point to, you've got that rapport. That's excellent. For them to trust it. On the flip side of that, Steve, um, if you're looking at buying something, what is it that vendors, sellers, agents can do that really just turns you off looking at purchasing a property? What is it that as a buyer become the deal breakers? For, for me, it's more just when they give you false information. Um, and a lot of the times, like, I'll spend two or three days doing due diligence and then you find something they gave you is completely false. Um, that makes it hard and <laughs> a lot harder to not be angry at them over stuff like that. Um, and knowing their product, obviously, sometimes they might give you false information because they just haven't spent the time getting yeah. to know their product. Some, sometimes they just don't know as well. The, the the seller gives them information, they put it on the information memorandum, and it's completely false. You check the rates or you check the rent, and it just doesn't match up. 
Um, but that that's part of the due diligence and why you use a buyer's agent or why you have to dig deep with a commercial. It's 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 a lot more risky than residential. It's not sort of surface. What you see is yep, what you get. Right. How would you pick an agent to sell with? If you were going to sell one of your commercial properties, what are some of the things you'd look for to select that agent? Prop, like Michael said, runs on the board is obviously a good one. Um, but then versatility and try to find ones where you've seen that they've actually got above market value. Just something that stands out where you look at it and go, oh, that that sold for way too much. That That's a good thing for, for when you're selling. Not great for me when I'm trying to buy. <laughs> Avoid those but, ones. <laughs> but if they're constantly got very high prices, it's probably an agent that I've probably not dealt with that much as well because if they're selling everything above market rate, I'm obviously yeah. not going to buy their stock. So it's a bit of a flip side compared to Michael's side of the fence. We see the same in residential. There's some agents we like to deal with because, for example, if they're going away on holidays, they might try and take some lower offers before they go because they just want to get it off their desk. And if they go away, they have to share the commission with another agent for the campaign. So they'll just put something a bit lower through. And we like to work with those agents from a buying perspective. Never, ever sell with those (laughs) agents. I get that a lot from buyers (laughs) in the industrial market because my views are like, we're doing this, we're putting a wall here, we're creating the potential tenancy here, we're ripping this out. Like, I love to do that prep work and there's a lot of time they're like, you've painted the story that it's going to get 300 grand a year income, it's getting 70. (laughs) And and I'm like, yes, but I'll get it. And it's like, I'm never buying from you, but I'll sell mine through you. (laughs) So I did a similar thing. I just sold a residential property and I saw, I just went on the sold data and found one that sold for about 200 grand than what I was selling my residential property for. And went, called him up straight away and said, how'd you get this? And he just said, I've got a huge, huge list of buyers and that's how I got. So I went with him and he got me that 200 grand more. With commercial, a bit harder to get that information because like I said, you want to find something that's sold for more than it's probably worth. But that's not as simple as just looking at a sold price like residential because you might click the property. You have to find out what he sold it for, how long the lease was, who the tenant was, what was going on in the market at the time. So it's actually probably a lot harder decision with with commercial. The tenant could have sold it just by having a good tenant. Like the agent just was there. They got a national tenant that walked in. Next minute they're selling it for a huge amount. And And then that's where you'd be like, okay, well, there's not much credit to the agent. Unless he had it prior, found the tenant, then flipped it again. Like then you're like, that's my, that's the guy I want. Took a because I've had built like West Street, where and that's the power of a tenanted property. It was um, client bought it for one point four, spent a couple hundred grand renovating it so it's pristine for a new tenant. Then flipped it six months later for two point four. Then we found a, a tenant for it, then sold it again three months later for two point nine. So. For buyers, you just got to know what stage you're, who you are. Are you to buy it unrenovated, flip it? Do you want the security of a tenant or do you want to find the tenant? Have even that even as simple cost? as trying to find out if it's sold vacant or with a yes. lease on it is a lot harder. Residential actually doesn't matter. Whether yeah. it's got a tenant or doesn't is probably going to go for a similar price. True. But commercial, completely different prices, as Michael said before. So a lot of buyers would look at starting with real commercial. They jump on real commercial and see what's on the market. Apparently at the moment, sweet FA. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's a bit of a long, hard road. And in residential, we hear about a lot of off-market deals. Now, I probably um, take a little bit of exception to that term because I hear a lot of buyers agents saying, I had an off-market deal when it's gone out to the agent's 7,000-strong database, gone on social media, been paid ads on social media. They've taken their their own buyers through and buyers agents through and half of social media through and it's off-market. I call that more of a limited campaign or a pre-market campaign, that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, it's just a different way to market it, right? You're just not going through that more expensive um, campaign. But in commercial, I believe it's it's quite a different scenario. How many deals really do happen that don't hit realcommercial.com and, and tend to be more of a, a genuine off-market kind of scenario? Yeah, quite a few. And the reason is 
you it's a lot of those properties are more owner occupiers. They've got their business there and they don't want people knowing they're selling. They don't want clients to get the so commercial off market is sort of in the true sense. There's no Facebook, there's no social media. And a lot of time a client will come to us going, I'll sell the building, but I don't want people to think I'm shutting down my business, they'll stop coming. So if you've got the one buyer or a couple of buyers who would buy this, no marketing. So uh, I reckon uh, I reckon there's at least 20 to 30%, could be even more. Keep in mind when residential people say it's off market, it never is. No. Like like off market, you'll see 40% of property sold off market in residence, it's probably 1%. Because they've done, yeah. yeah. Because in the true sense of yeah. off market. Yeah. Um, and even the pre-market deals sometimes are just rubbish. They come across your desk and you go, they don't want to market this because it's a piece of crap. That's why yeah. it's on my desk. <laughs> yeah. But commercial, it's a lot. It's a lot. What about yeah. your thoughts, So Steve? a couple of years ago, 50 to 80% I was buying off market. Yeah. yeah. But, but, yeah. but there was less interest in commercial back then. So you might be paying a fair market rate, but you're just getting first dibs on it. Mm. Now, in the last month or two, because of the lack of stock, I'd actually say an agent's doing something a little bit funny if they're selling off-market because they're not getting the best price. But mm-hmm. even the off-market ones I get from agents, we're not getting the days where you get 10% discount because it's off-market. You're, you're still paying market rate. There's, right. there's too many competitors. You just get to get in a little bit That's earlier it. now as opposed to being the last one they yeah, really And a, a lot of the times it will just be because the agent wants to sell it quickly or the owner wants to sell it quickly, whereas if they go to market, it might be three, four weeks. But, but having that time allows you due diligence, right? So sometimes where people, I, I think, go really wrong in any transaction is they skip due diligence because they panic and want to buy quick and move through the process too fast or they don't understand what's involved in due diligence. If you get a week ahead of other buyers, even if it's not officially off market, it's just sort of pre-market, that gives you a week of due diligence that other buyers just don't have. Yeah. Uh, one of the big things I find as a buyer's agent is you get attention from the agents more than the everyday buyer. So like when Michael calls me and I say, my buyer is good for this amount, he's pre-approved, he believes me. Whereas I've had I've had clients where they'll, they'll go reach out to an agent themselves and they won't even get a response from the agent because he's got hundreds. And then I actually call him up and say, hey, look, I've actually spoken to the agent. He said he'll sell for this price. Mm. And that's just the sign of the times. Yeah, right. All right, one last question. This is a question we ask everyone. It's not just a commercial question. It's a bit more of a general yeah. investment question. So there's a lot of different investment strategies out there. There's chasing high yield, boarding houses, flip, oh, renovate, then. sell, yeah. develop, split a blocks through to just rent vesting and buy and hold forever. And I'm sure there's probably 20 more I haven't even mentioned. What's the one at the moment everyone's raving about? Develop, um, build to hold, which is basically... Build to rent. Build to rent, yeah. sorry. Build to rent, which is basically just building it, not selling it. Yeah. But it's got a good term now. It's like the smashed avocado of the development world. What strategies do you like when it comes to investing? What do you think works? Uh, it's buy and hold. Italian background, never sell. <laughs> Simple. You take that you mean, you mean pay, to, yeah. your, to your even, funeral. You mean yeah. pay, pay cash, never cash, sell? Yeah. Like even <laughs> if it's a shit, even if you overpaid, give it 10 years, it's a bargain. Like it's a simple <laughs> so time in the market. Time in the market. But obviously see things you can do. Like <laughs> I personally bought an apartment, added an extra two rooms, got hammered by strata. So just try and increase the we income. We won't say where you, that is. Yeah. We won't give out your details on that. So it's little <laughs> things, but always look to... Just, yeah, the long-term play and see where you can increase income where you can by putting a granny flat on it. But it's time in the market. Simple. What about you, Steve? So maybe more in the commercial sector. Are there any particular strategies in that commercial space that you think work better for a lot of investors? 
Yeah, so increasing the tenancies, as we've discussed on this podcast, having multiple tenants paying a premium mm. square metre rate is just an instant way and an easy way. To, it's a, almost a zero-cost way of increasing your value, whereas the traditional methods of renovating things like that can cost 50, 100, 200,000. But as simply as having multiple tenants and bumping the rent up 30% per square metre has given you 30% capital growth. That's your go-to. Yeah. So if I'm an investor out there, like if I'm buying, obviously I can work with someone like yourself and, and Michael on the management side to, to get those things in play. If I'm an investor out there and I already own a commercial property, who would I go to to look at how I can do that if I don't know how to do it? Is that something you do, Steve? Is that something they should be talking to their managing agent about? Should they be changing managing agents because their managing agent hasn't flagged it with them? How do I how do I approach that? Yep. So speak to an expert, so a buyer's advocate or buyer's agent like me, um, and then a really good property manager um, or even sometimes selling agents like Michael. Yeah, because if you said to me, how can I – if you're, if you're going to sell this, how could I make this look the best income? And then someone like myself would be like, oh, I'd put a wall here, find two tenants – increase your rent and they'll, they'll actually help as well because then michael's value add for that situation we let me manage it for you once i've organized all the tradesmen and got it sorted for you so you, you can have a collaboration with them love your work yeah. guys so we know if you people anyone anyone wants to get in touch with steve it's at suburbanite.com.au how do they get in touch with you michael where do people go to if they want more information or to get you to sell or manage one of their properties yeah uh any on all the social media platforms michael Bergio or at novak properties Google and I'll come up. Or just drive down a main road on Northern Beaches and you see his face on billboards yeah. everywhere. <laughs> drive down Pilda <laughs> Road, you'll see my face and number and you call me. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks for coming in today, guys. Another episode of The Property Experience. Uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.